Make-A-Wish. You're about to enter a world of dreams come true. Where elephants fly, teacups dance, and lifelong friends are made every day. The Magic Kingdom. I felt that there should be something built, some kind of a amusement enterprise built where the, the parents and the children could uh, have fun together. <laughs> I'm Spinbot, XS Management Supervisor, speaking to you live from across the galaxy, where we're all set for yet another spectacular demonstration. Ladies and gentlemen, we are currently holding for further traffic clearance. W, w Radio, your information station. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 642, and together, this and every week, we'll celebrate the magic of the Disney parks, movies, and more, as together we go from the parks to the screens and everything in between, here on the podcast, my weekly live video on Facebook, community books, audio tours, blog, and more. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you can find everything else at www.radio.com. So please join me this week on an adventure through the savanna of East Africa as we look at 10 things you didn't know about Kilimanjaro safaris, including history, behind-the-scenes secrets, fun facts, and stories you've never heard before from a former Kilimanjaro safari cast member. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, and I'll pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show for information updates, your voicemails, and more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. Sometimes the most enjoyable, iconic, and even important attractions in the Disney parks aren't necessarily ones that utilize the latest technology or rely on recognizable, funny, furry, fluffy, and oh-so-very-marketable characters from the latest Disney film, and sometimes, as in this case, may have even taken decades to properly develop. And one such attraction that is really paradigmatic of this is one that I believe serves as the foundation for the entire park in which it is located. And I have talking, of course, about the Kilimanjaro safaris in Disney's Animal Kingdom. And whether you have written two times or 200, you've literally never had the same experience twice. And whether you think that you may have seen or know it all, um, this week, in an effort to help enhance your enjoyment and, more importantly, your appreciation of this attraction, we're going to share 10 things you didn't know about Kilimanjaro safaris. 
And joining me this week is someone who has not only ridden probably way more than 200 times, but has driven way more than that. He is Matthew Krull from the Imagineering Podcast, former Walt Disney World cast member and Kilimanjaro Safari. I want to welcome you back. I welcome you and welcome you back, Mac. Good to see you. You too, Lou. Thanks so much for having me on the show. This is a topic that I am so excited to chat about because it is strolling down memory lane. And you're right in the beginning when you said no two safaris are the same because I have, to your point, driven the attraction way more than 200 times. It's probably four digits uh, that I've, you know, over a thousand times that I've been on that, that attraction driving or as a guest. And no two experiences have ever been the same. It's one of the most dynamic attractions at Disney. And you may, may remember Matt from such shows as the from the Secrets and Illusions of Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World back on show 621. It was so good we stretched it out to two, 621 and 622. And really before Matt we get into some of the, the secrets and stories. I want to learn a little bit more. I want to know some of the secrets and stories behind Matthew Kroll and your time as a Kilimanjaro Safari guide. Um, tell me how you got the role. Was it something that you wanted and, and auditioned for? Because because you start off at Disney Store, then Disney College program, right? Yeah, you have a good memory. I, I did start at the Disney Store back when it was technically owned by the Children's Place, but still the Disney brand in one way or another, we were representing Disney. And then I, when I entered into college, I applied for my freshman year of the Disney College program. And at the time, you really, and it still is similar, you apply to a discipline, not a specific role. And I applied to attractions, which is really what I was hoping to get. I mean, that is what has always been the core of my Disney fandom is the, the attractions in the parks. And I, I wanted to work at a, an e-ticket attraction. Little did I know that when I got down to Orlando and I received my assignment, when I checked in that it was going to be Kilimanjaro Safaris, an attraction at that time I had only done maybe two or three times, despite having been around for quite a while. I think my family tried to more often go to Magic Kingdom or Epcot, maybe did Animal Kingdom once or twice on our trips in that that span of time. And it was quite an interesting journey. I did not expect to have so much fun in this role. I did expect it to be as challenging as it was, but I did not expect how even the worst days were going to be an absolute blast on that attraction. Um, and you do literally have to. I mean, one of the things I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna talk about is the is those amazing trucks on the attraction, those amazing safari vehicles. And a, a lot of times, people would ask me, even as a cast member, do you drive those, or is it more like an attraction where you you're on a track somehow, an automatic you know automated system, and you're just making it look like you're driving? And no, you are actually we are actually driving those trucks. So I had to spend first of all, I needed to present the fact that I had a valid driver's license, which is of course very important. But then I had to learn driver's ed style backstage in a parking lot, driving around with the truck, and then on backstage roads, and then onto the attraction, and few times without guests, just to make sure I knew what what I was doing. Um, and then practicing with guests and then starting to introduce the the script and the animal facts we had to learn. I did not go to school for zoology, so I knew almost nothing about these animals. So it was a it was a huge learning curve, but it ended up being what I think was the the most fun job I've ever had. So it was a great experience. You know, because I've always been fascinated as a guest, not just a not about all cast members, you know, not just going through traditions, but the training um, for a variety of different reasons and on a number of different levels. But I think Kilimanjaro Safaris is unique because I have to imagine that 
not only is your training different because you talk not just about the driving of the physical vehicle, which doesn't really happen almost anywhere else. I mean, maybe when they used to have to drive the backstage trams at the backlot tour, but you, and I want you to talk, I want you to touch on this a little bit because you need to be taught how to drive this massive vehicle, be responsible for a large number of guests, but you also have to, there's, I have to imagine there's, you're not just driving point, from point A to point B. There's a nuance to it because of the way the roads are not paved, the way some of the um, uh, the gates in between some of the different areas and such. But you also now have to learn about the nearly 40 or so different species on there. They are not in the same place at the same time. So there's, I have to imagine there's a lot going on to manage just internally and even externally in terms of what you convey to guests. So talk a little bit more about the training and the responsibility. There's a lot. Uh, the main responsibility is really those those trucks, as you talk about. And in any given day at, at Kilimanjaro Safaris, you're really, any cast member is going to be spending about 75, 80% of the day driving those trucks. The other 25, 20% is spent at one of the other positions around the attraction, whether it's a greeter in the front or the, the merge point for fast pass and standby or a load and unload cast member. Uh, you know, par- parking strollers. There's a number of different roles that are on the attraction. That gives us a break from talking because we do a lot of talking on the attraction. But you're right. There's a lot that we had to learn that week when it came to how the track is structured and some of the difficult points of maneuvering around the path, which there were a couple and there still are a couple of tricky spots that if you don't angle it just right, you can you know, pop a tire or you can go up on a curb. There's there's or up on some rocks, I should say. There's there's a few places that it can get a little tricky. And all the time we are still making sure to uh watch all the guests in the back in our rearview mirror because there are no seatbelts at this point at least on Kilimanjaro Safari. So guests are technically able to stand up, although they're not allowed to really stand up. So we have to make sure from a safety perspective that all guests are remaining seated. They're not holding their children off the side of the safari truck or doing anything that might be risky on an attraction like that. And we also have to spot the animals and know how to spot them, what they look like, what they're called. And there are some small animals on the attraction that honestly could even you know, cross the path or there's a couple of small birds that could stop in the path at times that we need to know how to adapt to those situations and what the protocol is for when an animal does get into the road um, and what who we call what we do in, in a case like that. So the whole week we only had at least, you know, this was back in 2007 when I was training there, we only had a standard 40 hour work week to learn everything. And that included how to drive the trucks, what the scripts, scripted parts were for safety spiels, for uh, you know conservation messages. Back at that time, there was the poacher scene, so the timing for all the interactions with Warden Wilson Matua, and you know then all the animal facts. And we literally got a booklet on our first day, and they said, "Hey, here are all the animals. Know two or three of them by the time you're assessed. Uh, sorry, know two or three facts per animal by the time that you're assessed." And then on the last day, we literally, you know, the entire week, we're learning every position. We're put with a trainer. Um, it's usually, in my case, it was two cast members training with one trainer and taking turns doing all different parts of the attraction. And on the last day, they put us with a completely different trainer to give some unbiased assessment. 
and we'd have to check off. And there was a huge, long, you know, multi-page checklist of things we had to check off and, you know, checking off all those key basics of, of Disney safety and courtesy um, and show and efficiency. Now it would also be, I guess, diversity as well. Um, make sure we, we knew our animal facts, make sure we were driving safely. We knew our radio codes that we knew absolutely everything. So there was a, a huge learning curve and, uh, you know, a lot of systems in place to help us to learn everything we needed to know. But I was back at home every night studying animal facts. And I don't know if any other attraction you'd have to do that. Um, now, years later, I honestly don't remember all the animal facts because it's been a decade since I worked there. But it was, uh, you know, for a long time, I actually retained a lot of the knowledge of, of those animals having, you know, talked about them every day for months and then years uh, on the attraction. So it's, it's, it's quite like definitely when you, when you, go to the attraction, um, anyone who's listening and, and you experience those cast members, you have to give them a little bit of credit for the amount of effort and uh, and the amount of learning that has to go into that attraction because it is it is massive. Yeah, the amount of learning, the... Oh, and look, this this is one too, you know, a lot of times you ask people what, what they would like to do, what, what role they would like. So many people say things like Jungle Cruise, which to a certain degree, you do have a, a set-ish script to follow, but this really is on you because one, the animals change locations and visibility from hour to hour, you know, minute to minute. The, what you know as a cast member in terms of your knowledge of, of that comes out. And I think personality too. And that's why, you know, we, we all appreciate all cast members, but there are some, and I have to imagine, I didn't get to ever ride with you, but I have to imagine you were probably those one ones that, you would walk off, and I and I tell you, man, I've done this more times than I can count. I walk off an attraction, I thank that cast member, and then I go find a lead and say, you know, so-and-so was exceptional. I've been on this attraction a hundred times, and it I, and this just happened to me a few weeks ago on the safari, of all things. It was, it was like a brand new experience because I had never heard any of these facts before, and my family and I got off. I found a lead. We thanked the, the driver and we wanted to make sure that got passed up the chain because as guests, as repeat visitors, when you think that you've seen and done all, this is this is one of those great ones where it's not just about the animals, but about your driver as well. Yeah, I'd like to think that I, I did my part in conveying information in an entertaining way. And I was one of those cast members who did not like a lot of dead space, um, you know, whether it was time between seeing animals or there were times where I would be quiet to allow people to enjoy the the animals. I wasn't, if they were taking pictures or videos, I didn't want my voice always there in the background, but they, it became challenging with certain safaris where I think the animal care team in particular has done a, a great job of in the last few years, I've noticed a lot more of the animals are present. But in the beginning, I have to say 10, 15 years ago, there were times, especially in the middle of the summer, on a really hot day in the middle of the afternoon where all of us are, are, you know, sweating on that truck and the animals, because they're hot too, are in the brush, in the shade. And we would drive through the Savannah and there would be no animals. <laughs> and how do you, you know, it, it, then it became challenging of how do you as a cast member still present a, a great experience despite not seeing all the animals or like, Hey, there's that giraffe about 50 feet off to your right, you know? <laughs> look, ostrich eggs. There's the ostrich eggs still sitting there. Yeah, I mean, exactly. look, that's the thing too. Like, you have to be able to deliver that, I can't call it a, a spiel or a narration. You have to deliver that experience 
like it is your first time and that guest's first time, which is sometimes hard because for you, it is your 500th, you know, trip in 900 degree weather outside. (laughs) Um, And the ability to do that and convey that enthusiasm and excitement, that's what that's what makes or breaks an exceptional safari experience. Making the, uh, the 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 tilting bridge is no longer uh, a part of the experience, but making that sounds surprising. Like even I wasn't expecting it every single time, even though I knew the exact second that was going to happen. It took I, I have no background in acting or theater, and you should not put me on camera for acting in any way. But I really had to pretend that I was fearing for my life <laughs> at that point, or at least completely shocked that this bridge seems to be collapsing around us but it was uh yeah it's it, it can be challenging but it was always a lot of fun yeah it, look i mean it, it could be very simple i'm sure when it's four o'clock in the afternoon you've been driving all day and it's crazy hot outside to just sort of phone it in you know look there's my favorite plant there's my favorite plant but <laughs> you know 99 percent of the time that doesn't happen and and i give a lot of credit to cast members for that. But let's get into some of the things that we were talking about. Let's get into some of these secrets and stories about Kilimanjaro safaris that maybe every guest does not know. Um, and and I am so curious. You know, I have a, a list of some of my own, but I am so curious as a guest, as a fan, to, to hear some of the things that you're going to bring. So please go first. Well, I'm going to start with one that I think a lot of people do know. I'll, I'll I'll throw in some of the the ones maybe people don't know a little later on. But I want to start with the I think literally the biggest fact about Kilimanjaro Safaris, which is its size. It's hard to imagine how big Kilimanjaro Safaris is as a guest as you're walking into the queue experience. You know, you get a sense of of maybe how long the queue might be or your relative space. But then when you're out in the attraction, you can't really sense really how massive the attraction is. And my favorite fact is the fact that the entire attraction by itself is larger than the Magic Kingdom. So if you picture as a guest walking into the Magic Kingdom and all the, you know, the six themed lands that are there, Kilimanjaro Safari, that whole space can fit comfortably inside the space for Kilimanjaro Safaris. So in itself, that's a massive attraction, one attraction larger than a theme park. Um, and that also includes then Disney's Hollywood Studios. I mean, it's it's larger than even Disney's Hollywood Studios when you think about that. Uh, and this whole area before it was Kilimanjaro Safaris, I mean, it was well first Swampland, but then they had to they cleared the entire thing um, to start with construction, and then they had to introduce plant life. You know, even up to eighteen months before animals were introduced, and then introduce animals, and then introduce you know and and all the other aspects of the attraction um and the the attraction is so large that it's it includes six separate ecosystems on the attraction um and i'm giving like a couple of a couple of spin-offs here but the there are six ecosystems within the attraction and you know they are meant to mimic different parts of africa which i will get to uh, one of us i'm sure will get to uh, in a little bit but the six ecosystems, which people might not know, are the Aturi Forest, which you enter into first, uh, the Safi River, which is what you enter into second. That's where you find the hippos and the crocodiles. Uh, then you make your way to West Savannah, where you see usually giraffes, wildebeest, um, and coli cattle. Uh, you know, you could see uh, that's where the, the hyenas and the wild dogs are as well. Elephant country, self-explanatory, that's where the elephants are. 
East Savannah, which is where you have white rhinos, cheetahs, lions, hyenas, and uh, not hyenas, uh, warthogs and ostrich or a few of the examples there. And then a name that's not as well known, it was part of the original storyline. And to be honest, I don't know if they've changed the name since I worked there, but Magani Gorge, which is where they had the poacher scene um, in the original storyline of the attraction. So it's, it's a huge, huge attraction split into multiple pieces. And the storyline also calls for the size of it to be 800 square miles. So to really make it seem like 800 square miles, you have to make it a huge attraction. And when you talk about scale of a of, of a ride like this, I mean, it is absolutely massive. So that's probably my favorite fact is just the the scope and the size of this beast <laughs> is is tremendous. Yeah, and and when you talk about how you know Magic Kingdom can fit inside here, it it it, it starts to give it a little bit of of scope and and scale when you start using numbers. You know, you can't necessarily picture what a million and a half cubic yards of dirt looks like but when you hear that there's more than two million two million plants that are brought in because they are literally starting with a blank slate and they have to make this look and not just feel like different parts of the world that are not necessarily native to florida but a place where animals that are not native to florida have to come in and live as well and and i love how you sort of connected the fact that these 110 acres that that we are seeing in the theme park are meant to reflect a much larger 800 square miles of natural terrain that we would be seeing you know somewhere in Africa whether it's in the Congo or in the the Serengeti wherever it might be um and it sometimes the the most effective storytelling starts without a, without a word being spoken or even written yet because they've got to get the sense of place just right. Um, and, I, and I think it's, again, knowing what Central Florida looked like beforehand, uh, it, I've, I'm always amazed with the monumental construction and the vision and the execution that Disney is consistently able to pull off. And you think that an attraction like this, which is relatively low tech, you know, there's sensors and we'll talk about some of the, the feeding and things like that, but relatively low tech, the the visionaries and the vision that had to be brought in, in in order to execute it this way. Yeah, I think the Imagineers wanted to convey that feeling that they had when they went to Africa to research for the attraction. And it does present itself in that way, still within 20 minutes, uh, you know, and back when... <laughs> Again, the storyline has changed a bit and we could talk about some of the changes, but back when I worked there, it was a two-week safari. And that's what we presented is when when guests boarded that vehicle, you know, we said we we introduced the fact that you're going to be on a two-week photo safari. We don't know what animals we're going to see. We don't know where they're going to be. And we're just going to try to find them. We'll use Warden Wilson Batua's, you know, guidance and the plane above to see where the animals might be. And we'll start heading in those directions. And the way that the paths can do diverge in different ways. And some of them lead to <clears throat> dead ends and some of them lead to actual backstage locations it really does give a sense of, of discoverability. Um, you know, animal kingdom is all about the wild and, and sort of creating your own adventure within the park and Kilimanjaro safaris, while you're not necessarily as a guest creating your own experience, the cast members that are there are creating that experience for you to, even though it is the same the same track that we're following every single time to make it seem like 
maybe we're taking a different turn that we didn't before. And unless you don't know the, unless you know the attraction by heart, know every single turn, it can, you can be convinced that maybe we're going to head somewhere different this time, or, you know, maybe, maybe we're going to see a different animal that we might not have seen before. And, and the, again, the size of it helps to create that diversity and that ability to, um, to play into that sense of adventure. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, a great little fact um, that sometimes you got to go big to uh, to create an experience like this. You literally took the words out of my mind and mouth because there still is that sense of adventure on this different than something like a Jungle Cruise. Listen, it, it took me very late in life to realize I don't think the skipper is actually steering this boat. He's spinning <laughs> that wheel wildly and he just invited that kid up to drive. And I, But here there is, a you know, even though you know you know, that there is no track, there still is that that sense of adventure and sort of piggybacking on all of this, you know, it also makes Kilimanjaro safaris, and I have to think this out, it's one of, or I probably the longest attraction that's not a show in any of the Disney parks, right? Coming in at 20 minutes or so, because you might get an, an Ancoli cattle that decides he's going to hang out in the middle of the path for a while and they're going to be backed up a little bit. That's why I always bring snacks. You can't yes. eat on the safari, but just in case we get stuck there, um, which is one of the things I love. I mean, you you definitely get your quote-unquote money's worth because you know you're going to have a long, very interesting, very immersive experience. For sure. Lou, I'm curious what your first fact is because I feel like, again, you're going to present some information that whether it's statistics or data or, or you know, having spoken to, to folks who have, who have helped to bring these attractions to life as well, I'm sure that you have some, uh, some facts uh, up your sleeve that I might not even know having, having worked there. I'm sure. Actually, what I want to do is I want to get into, because I think you're going to be, I think this is just going to be a fun thing to talk about because you started to talk, you know, Kilimanjaro Safaris is, is multi-experiential. And what I mean by that is there is, this idea that we are getting on this truck and we are driving through what is not a zoo, but a, a zoo-like experience. We're getting introduced to all of these different species of animals and some of their stories and some of the things that change there. But there really is an underlying storyline and backstory to this attraction, which is actually one that has changed three times since it first opened, and I think, and and I love the fact that you were present when you were, because you can touch on this too. Because these were my early, and I've been going since '98. Because one iteration of the attraction, the initial iteration of the attraction, is one that 99.999% of people have never seen because it was never actually seen in that form by guests. Uh, because the attract before the attraction opened to the public. You talked briefly about this idea of of Big Red and Little Red and, and the, the poacher storyline. Uh, and I don't know if you can, and I'm going only on being told this by others and, and, and reading this elsewhere, that originally when you came to the end scene, which at one point when you were there, there was the truck that had Little Red in the back and there used to be a live cast member there. I always felt so sorry. I'm like, oh, that poor cast member was just standing there with a rifle, just sort of waving a guest as they come back to, um, you know, to home base. But the idea was that um, to really bring home this conservation and this this awareness of poaching and poachers, and there was, and, and excuse me for being overly graphic, but there was a figure of a, a poached elephant, uh, 
not po- like a poached egg, but a poached <laughs> elephant. Um, and the, the carcass of the elephant without its tusks at the end of the attraction. And before it was revealed to guests, uh, Disney, I think, very wisely r- recognized that it might have been a little bit too graphic, a little bit too disturbing. They pulled the deceased elephant off the scene. They left Little Red there who, yay, you know, was was um, fortunately being able to to be reunited. But talk a little bit about, and, let, and then we'll talk about how it's changed, but you were there during this, the storyline that included Big Red disappearing. Um, you know, we, they didn't talk about the, the elephant being killed one way or the other. And this uh, Little Red that we as participants in the safari helped to rescue. Yeah, I was there right when they changed the storyline slightly to actually remove the names Big Red and Little Red and just have a a mother elephant and a baby elephant missing, which in one sense makes more sense because with an 800 square mile reserve, it's unlikely that every warden's going to know every elephant by name. Um although those were supposed to be the the stars of the attraction. When I started, it was that a mother elephant had gone missing and I'm sorry, a a baby elephant was found by itself and that there were the mother couldn't be found. And that presented the idea of poaching. And I just did an episode about Kilimanjaro safaris where I talk about the the layers that this story is developed in, in great detail even going back to the queue, you're introduced to the idea of poachers. And it's done in such a way that by the time, you know, as a cast member, I would, we would hear, you know, guests and cast members, you would hear in the attraction, the fact that this, uh, there were poachers in the reserve, that there's a collective buy-in to want to help. And I love the way the Imagineers really incorporated, because maybe not everybody knows what poaching is, um, but through the script and through the, uh, you know, Warden Wilson Batua's um, messages about, you know, about looking out for poachers. And I'd say, keep your eye out for poachers and that poaching is a problem. We talk about the importance of conservation and how even when we got to elephant country, which is still an important fact to convey the sense that elephants rely on society. They rely on family to survive, especially babies. They need to go up to their teen years, still needing their mother around to learn everything about their ecosystem, about where to find food, where to find water, how to stay, keep their skin healthy from, uh, from sunburns, which they can get. And, you know, literally everything they, they pass on, the mothers pass on so much information and are the, the matriarchs. They are the heads of the, of the elephant society, of elephant society. Um, the, the, patriarchs, the males tend to live a, a bachelor life as adults when they when they get older. So conveying all this information about the animals and talking about poaching and then, you know, now finding that there's a baby elephant by itself and then getting to the point where we see smashed gates and now we know that the mother's life is in danger. That right there is your buy-in and you take that home with you. You all of a sudden, you know, there's... Animal Kingdom is one of those parks that can change you, and you go home with that that actual buy-in. You didn't just watch a story, but you, in a way, participated in a story of saving elephants. Um, and that, when you know, even hearing Joe Rody talk about it, you, you you really take away these this message of con- conservation and take it to heart when you, when you walk off that attraction. Um, 
But yeah, well, the poetry scene was helped, interesting. I think you also helped sell it even more too, because it wasn't just the gates. It wasn't just the narration and the story. We'll get back to my old friend, Warden Wilson Matua, who I loved, <laughs> by the way. But you also bought into it from narration, from the delivery of, of the portion of your script that you had to deliver, obviously, a, a very certain way. But even from an experiential point of view, because I remember there was this, oh my God, well, like we have to go and hurry up to try and, and all of a sudden you're leisurely tripped through the safari. This is when something goes horribly wrong. You have to start putting pedal to the metal and you start going faster through. And I remember the rickety bridge that moved. I mean, there was a, there was obviously a mechanical element to this bridge that you felt a sense of danger as you went over, like this bridge could literally collapse at any second because, and this is where I think that little bit of the sprinkling of Imagineering technology came in because it looked and felt like a, a bridge that had certainly seen better days. Yes, that, that scene in particular was a lot of fun. As a cast member in the front, I have to say it actually appears very safe when you when you know how it works and you're able to see it moving from the the actual perspective of seeing the bridge itself because that as a guest you're really just looking off to the side you can't really see the bridge at that point but as a cast member in the front of the vehicle you can see the bridge moving and i can tell you that it like i always felt 100% safe going over that thing um plus they have which people might not know that particular part of the experience they have and again it's it's not part of the experience anymore you just go over the bridge without anything happening but they had all these these safety um, mechanisms in place that we had to drive at a very particular speed. And if we were too fast, we could we could go too slow. But if we were too fast, um, there were warning signals in place that we would know that we were going too fast. And it's not just like, you know, the bridge would do it anyway. If those warning signals were on and we got to a certain point on the bridge and the sensors sensed that it wouldn't work, it would just stay completely in place. Um, and there were also uh, ways that we Again, using using certain signals that I won't give away, we're able to know it's the area right before the bridge is, is surrounded by brush. So we can't see the bridge, which is very intentional. But there are signals in place that tell us if there's a truck ahead or not, because the last thing we want to happen is to round that corner and see the bridge collapsing with a truck on it. First of all, guests would not want me to go over that bridge. And second of all, it would, of course, to destroy the surprise and the illusion of, of that moment. But uh, yeah, that that part, you really do get a sense of of danger. Um, and in going through the poetry scene, I mean, that you actually we did really literally put the pedal to the metal. And I will I'll, I'll share some fun facts about the trucks, but we literally did put the pedal to the metal. And there is a one of our favorite or collective favorite as cast members working there. And my one of my favorites uh, stickers that's on the front of the cab says i love potholes and we truly do know all those potholes so if we have and we can always tell if we have those thrill-seeking guests in the back we will find those potholes when that scene existed when we were really putting the pedal to the metal and we can create like a dinosaur-like experience going through that part of the the attraction um otherwise you know if we had guests who were maybe a little bit more sensitive and we can tell that it we shouldn't really, you know, it's like a lot of kids, a lot of young kids or something. We take it a little bit easier, maybe not push it quite as fast as we normally would. Um, so it was, yeah, I mean, that that alone is a, is a dynamic experience. We could control how thrilling the poetry scene was going to be. 
That's cool. That, that's great to know, especially that you're able to, to kind of read the room that way. Not that some dad's coming in, slipping you a $10 bill going, make this one special. A little, <laughs> little fast for the kids, would you? Um, you know, that never happened to me, but that would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like you said, you know, in, in 2007, they sort of scaled that, that the story, not the storytelling, but that part of the story back. There, there was this baby elephant that's going to be in, in the park somewhere. Keep your eyes out. For it, um, I, I remember even in the in the queue in the the warden's office, there was a sign that I think might have still still uh, I think it's mentioned still there. big and yeah mentioned big and little red by name. But then in in 2012 or so, they really sort of got rid of the whole poaching baby red um, storyline, which. Is fine. I understand. There's, there's, there were elements of that that I miss, and and I'll, I'll eventually get to one of those little things about Kilimanjaro Safari that I missed and I love so very much. Um, but that speedy part of the chase, that that bumpy, rickety bridge, um, is now incredibly secure. It's been fixed over the years. Uh, so that that's where the storyline currently sits today. But one of the things I, I always dug too, Matt, was that like so many other things, if you know where and how to look, there are many times that the storyline will bleed beyond the confines and the four corners of the attraction. So I loved Warden Wilson Matua and Catherine Jobson, wherever you are. Um, are you, I think, I think she's still in the queue video. She, although, yeah. Yeah. yeah, she is. Warden Wilson Matua has totally he, been uh, he's erased from the attraction. He's yeah. moved on. But this is where we get to have a little bit of fun. Warden Wilson Matua, you are gone but not forgotten because not only were you are you remembered in Disney's Animal Kingdom, but your family namesake is remembered in the Skipper Canteen. Because there's actually a book in the Jungle Navigation Company Skipper Canteen known as the Harambe Chronicles by Wilson. So it's probably not by Matua himself just because of, of timing and, and setting. But you have to then imagine that the, the Matua family has probably been involved in the safaris and, and conservation and animals for uh, a long, long time. I believe is still his name is also still in the wilderness explorers handbook as uh the warden there's a, there's a pay, there's talking about getting your african cultural bag badge there's a um uh there's a reference to matua as the warden um and even too if you look throughout disney's animal kingdom there's a number of of signs that still talk about um poaching there's some not so subtle references to one Joe Rody throughout uh, some of those as well. So I love the fact that those deeper, uber nerdy layers are are there for fans of the attraction and, and the stories. Yeah, there's a really deep layer to the story that even ties into Harambe and into the poaching storyline in particular that the Fort of Harambe was established, I believe it was in 1420, if I have my dates correct. And there's a sign that you can find that that was when Harambe was established. And back in that era, uh, up until what would have been now 40, 50 years ago, or 50, 50, 60 years ago, I should say, that the Harambe, that Harambe was under you know sort of similar to adventureland style it was it was a colonized um city or colonized town in 
Africa and the way that they relied on their economy or the way that they they supported their economy was through trade. So back then it was actually and they sold or they traded gold, spices, ivory and unfortunately and, and unfortunately ivory was a part of it and the fort was built in order to sort of protect those those uh those goods from being stolen or pirated and the idea that ivory was part of their trade meant that the animals on the attraction were in danger especially the elephants and rhinos who you know that's where you get ivory from and so the idea that their backstory was one that honestly didn't support uh, conservation. And then when Harambe gained its independence, <clears throat> which was in 1961, and there's a, there's another tribute to that somewhere else, the locals shifted the economy. They no longer were going to be trading these goods. So instead, in order to support their economy, they shifted to ecotourism and established the reserve to protect the animals. And in order to keep their economy going, started Kilimanjaro safaris. In, uh, and that was back in 1971, which is a nod to Walt Disney World's opening. Uh, and that was now how they supported their it was their economy was by doing these two-week tours of the Savannah and of all these ecosystems in the 800 square miles of the reserve. And knowing that Warden Wilson Matua, for instance, would have been around back before in the, the Harambe gained its independence and had seen and grown up in that world of now we need to protect this, this, this wildlife and these ecosystems. And we need to teach about conservation. And then, you know, Catherine Jobson coming along as well and studying in Harambe and studying all these animals and the pair of them working together, they really helped to um, paint that story of conservation really well. But I love that backstory of Harambe because it shows, first of all, again, that that level of storytelling and imagineering that no one walking into Harambe is going to know that off the bat, unless they're nerds like us who they know that information they studied up ahead of time. But the, even if you don't know those specific dates or that specific history, there are parts of Harambe that give that away. And then there's also the messaging of, of Wilson Matua and Catherine Jobson that really helped to convey some of that history, or at least the effects of now shifting to a society that is um, supporting conservation and doing so in a way that still supports their economy. So I, I love that sort of almost real world, um, you know, nod to to uh, to conservation and how how these these towns and civilizations have had to, in many cases, shift to a more uh, you know sustainable form of their economy. Right. You can you can deliver an imper an incredibly important and powerful and impactful message in not a way that is preachy, but in a storytelling way that, that does such a wonderful job of conveying it. And as you were talking, I'm smiling because, uh, you know, again, it's peeling back the layers of the onion, however nerdy and deep you want to get, because everything you see everywhere, there's a reason for it. So you talked about how this town went from this poaching location to a village of ecotourism. And now bringing people into not take advantage of the animals and the land, but to understand it and appreciate it through tourism is woven throughout. So you can find posters that has Captain Bob's tours. If you look really carefully at the Captain Bob poster, I would say it looks very, very much like a certain uh, now former Imagineer, one Joe Rohde, um, there's also a um, there's another poster for a, a 
um, an art, a local artisan who sells beads and, and masks, and his name is Jerody. J O R O D I, which sounds a whole lot like Joe Rody, and you can find the the Jerody throughout Harambe. And there's also, um, and I love the fact that that they're weathered and they're aged and they're partially torn. But you'll see on a number of locations, um, including even in in some of the the queue areas for um, quick service drink and snack locations. There's a, a Kinga balloon company that has this beautiful yellow and, and orange i think it's like orange on top and then yellow um uh, tourism balloon that if you look in the queue of kilimanjaro safari the balloon is up in the rafters and i'm like when you make that connection and it clicks you're like oh like how smart and visionary are they to connect this throwaway prop in the rafters with this throw non-throwaway poster littered throughout this village like those are the things that make me smile it I is don't they, get out very much clearly <laughs> <laughs> there are so many details so many things that even i haven't you know don't specifically remember or, or haven't picked up on in a while but they do really you know that's one of the reasons i love animal kingdom so much they have so much detail that that plays into this idea of storytelling and they do it in, in such a great way. Um, and, and one of the things that I definitely want to touch on is, is the way that that's actually also woven back into reality, because they not only convey the story of conservation, but they also walk the walk. And there's this, you know, part of the, you know, there's a lot, and we could, honestly, this goes back into the, the backstory of Animal Kingdom in itself and the way that they they really took a, an extra effort to work with um, folks who were able to talk about ways to care for these animals. And they really made sure to create environments that the animals were really, and they still are, the VIPs of the attraction. Guests are, are you know, probably the first most important. But I have to admit, like, the animals are, are very close to the top of the list for importance vips on on the attraction and they have the right of way in the savannah so there are times where we will literally stop to your point it could be a 20 minute a, a, you know safari attraction it could be an hour and there there are times there it has been including myself personally i've done an hour safari before wow. because there is an animal that just will not move and right, there are a couple looking at the animals to, to get out of the way and Right. We're honestly, that would be one of the things that would get us fired on the spot if we were to to honk at an animal. Um, having signed you, off on the fact that we know not and you to do can't that. back up, correct? Like you're not allowed to reverse your vehicle. No, there's only the only time that cast members are allowed to back up, and there are a couple of times where that might be necessary. I had to do it once during training, but that was okay because it was during training. Um, and it actually doesn't happen too often in the savannah. It usually happens. There's one of the two unload docks can be very tricky. And if you don't time it and get it just right, you can be too far from the dock and they're not going to let guests out. So they do have to back, back the truck up. But in those cases, you always need a spotter, whether that's another cast member or a maintenance cast member or animal care, someone who's able to, because there's no way for you to see, there's no backup camera, like in some of the cars we have today. So you literally can't see right behind the truck. Just to make sure there's no animals or nothing in the way. It has to be done with someone else spotting. 
but the animals, yeah, they they have the the absolute right of way. There's no honking at the animals. The only people who are allowed to interact with the animals and get them to um, to to encourage them to move out of the road <clears throat> are the animal care teams. And if you've seen the 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 magic of Disney's Animal Kingdom on Disney Plus, you'll learn a lot more about that animal care team and they and the veterinary team as well. And they really are. They care. You can you could just tell by hearing them in their interviews, and I experienced the same thing. They care so deeply about these animals as if they were their own pets. They really, you know, their own members of their own family. And there's there's always positive reinforcement with these animals. There's never negative reinforcement. So the only thing they'll ever do to get them out of the road is to invite them to snack on, on something. Um, that's sort of positive reinforcement to uh, to get out of the way. There's a couple of very stubborn animals that sometimes won't even move for that, but they're usually going to uh, usually they're just passing by anyway, or they're walking in the road for a set amount of time. But the those animals they they really can cause a, a delay on the attraction, and there's nothing we can do until uh, until they decide on their own, even with positive reinforcements to to get out of the way. Cool. Uh, all right. What else do you have? Um, what other secret and story do you have to share? I definitely want to talk about the trucks. There's a lot that goes into the trucks themselves. First of all, the trucks are called Tembo trucks and Tembo is Swahili for elephant. And that's because partially their size and also the theme of elephants ties really well into the storyline of the attraction. These were custom built. Um, I believe they were primarily GMC top kicks, although I've heard that there were also some other uh there was perhaps some other vehicles that were purchased and converted, but the, the GMC top kicks are the ones that at least I remember seeing that were created into or turned into these safari vehicles. Um, you know, we already talked about the fact that they are, they're free roaming. <clears throat> and one of a couple of things that people might not know are one, these are not diesel or gas trucks. They actually run on propane. And the reason for that is it is, or at least was back in, in 1998, it, was one of the more sustainable or at least the cleanest, I should say, um, the safest type of fuel to use for a vehicle that size that would not pose a hazard to the animals in the savannah. So that is a pretty fun fact that I don't know a lot of people know. And that's why it also has a very distinct smell. It doesn't have a, a diesel or a gas smell. It's a propane smell if you ever, you know, are behind the the, or at the dock and you, you smell the uh, the propane from the exhaust, <clears throat> that's what they they run on. And, um, you know, you, you talked a little bit about sort of, you, know, you led into the idea of tracking the, the vehicles throughout the attraction. There, you know, there are RFID pucks that are embedded throughout the attraction so that coordinators and managers can track to see where the vehicles are. They can also see where there might be perhaps a, an obstacle in the way or, you know, get a sense of how to coordinate every cast member on the attraction, which is another very coordinators on this attraction have a very difficult role in coordinating all the vehicles and all the cast members that are working there. But given that going back to the size of the attraction, one of my favorite things is that on peak days, there can be 40 trucks out on the attraction. And that means if you do the math, there can there are easily on peak days over a thousand guests on the attraction wow. at a time. So it really is a massive experience. I think the most I ever saw was 41 vehicles of the the total. There were 44 that are on, at least when I was there, there were 44 uh, vehicles for Kilimanjaro Safaris. They would have on those peak summer days or the week of Christmas or Easter, there would be 41 trucks 
um, out on the savanna or in the space between the um, the unload and the the loading docks, as sort of underneath those bridges on the queue. Um, but these are you know these are real trucks. They are <laughs> there's a maintenance team devoted to them. They they have to be refueled every night. There's there's really there's a lot of checks that have to go into safety checks that have to happen every single morning and every single evening to to start up and and to close down the attraction. And that also ties into the idea that part of what can wear and tear perhaps the fastest with the vehicle are the tires. And so in order to ensure that one, they don't pop and you know, there's no, I've never seen a flat tire on Kilimanjaro safaris because the maintenance team does a great job of making sure the tires are in great shape, but ensuring that the, the tires remain in a really, um, a state that's able to to make its way through such a rugged terrain is you'll notice as you go through the attraction there the vehicle goes through puddles and a lot of people assume that's just for storytelling and it is a great a great part of storytelling is the idea that it's the wild and you're going through these these puddles that perhaps there is a, a you know huge rainstorm or you're going through mud mud or you know all these different wet parts of uh, of the road but that's not only part of storytelling but also functional because it keeps the tires lubricated, which is also why when you exit the safari, you go through this, you know, almost lake with waterfalls because they really need to lubricate the tires a lot at that point. Because cast members need to, in order to dock, turn the tires up into this rubber guard at the bottom of the load and the unload docks to make sure that we're literally as close to the dock as possible. And so you and that's what you hear when you when you hear the trucks docking, you hear this squeaky rubbery noise. It's wet rubber from the tires up against the rubber guards at the base of the loading and unloading docks. So these are, you know, very complex vehicles, but they are, you know, they are actual vehicles as if you were driving them on the road. Um, and they they require a lot of maintenance. And I love the fact that they built in those, they thought ahead and they knew we need to keep these tires wet. And the best way to do that is building in puddles into the the savannah to keep with the story of a wild adventure. I'm smiling again. This is why I'm so happy <laughs> that you're here, man, because you wouldn't, there's no way we would know that had we not heard it from a cast member. You know, I, I mentioned how every, there's a reason for everything and everything has a reason not thinking that the puddles are there for a, a practical purpose. And when you asked, you know, almost rhetorically how many trucks we would imagine being out on the safari i never would have imagined that they could have 40 i would have said maybe you know 15 20 max on on christmas day again going to the numbers really driving home the point of just how big it is because even with that many vehicles on the attraction because of the way it's designed nine times out of ten you don't even notice that there's another vehicle there it feels like a very isolated individualized attraction and you're not distracted by any of the other vehicles on the safari so i, I think that that alone is um you know good night everybody that's my take home fact, <laughs> you know which like everything we're talking about man i want people to pay forward you know i want people when they're on this attraction again with their family or their friends um you know th this is the kind of stuff that they can um pay forward and share with other people too it also gives you an idea of how many cast members are working on the attraction on any given day. I mean, that's when you count in the number of land positions that are there, plus the fact that there are usually cast members who are on break at any given time. There could be 60, 65 just 
cast frontline cast plus coordinators plus managers. So it can, you know, it gets close to a hundred people that are that are working on Kilimanjaro safaris on any given day, on a peak day at least. That's crazy. And and you know, you you brought up a great point about the animal care specialists. Um, I, I highly, highly recommend going to places like um, Conservation Station. I was going to call it Rafiki's Planet Watch. Going to the Conservation Station, whatever you want to call it, Rafiki's Planet Watch. Watching some of the animal care experts there, even when you're out on the safari, oftentimes you'll see some of the animal care experts um, feeding, maintaining some of the the feeding areas. And, and remember that there's an entire team. And one of the things I wanted to share too, which I think so much you, you might not think about it or because you feel like this is a real actual safari, this is not you know, a, a stage recreation of it. I really used to think when I first went, well, at night, you know, they just sort of pull all the trucks in and the animals just hang out here. What you don't realize is that the animals, you know, they get to go home, they go off stage too, and they have they have quarters that are not outdoors on this stage. And one of the things that I, I learned many years ago from somebody who was a friend who was an animal care specialist was that there are... Each of these species of animals has been trained to recognize a certain type of call, a notification to let them know, okay, you know, the guests have gone home, it's time to come in. So whether it is uh, a sound of, you know, a metal bar being hit underwater for the Nile crocodiles, if there's a drum sound for an elephant, if there's uh, a, a different type of a call for one of the gazelles, they know exactly what that means, where to go, and that, you know, it, it's time for the day to be over, which that too, Matt, is just fascinating in terms because there, there's so much unknown, right? These aren't actors where you can say, okay, you know, it's time to take a break and, and go off stage, um, you know, and call cut. They have to sort of be trained um, and and obviously very, very well to be able to respond to those cues like that. They do. And they, yeah, they are. Uh, yeah. They're not act there. It, it's one of those attractions that it's, they operate. If you think about it, it's a 24 seven attraction because the animals are always there. They always need to be cared for. And the maintenance, I can't even imagine how much it costs to maintain the attraction when you think about the animals alone, but it's uh, yeah, they have their own. Some of the animals have their own spaces on the Savannah um, for important reasons. And others have, and all of them have their own devoted spaces, their own homes to go to at the at the end of the day. So it's uh, it's it's amazing to think about how much goes on behind the scenes during the day and overnight to ensure that these animals are cared for. And and, and when they come back, and as we're starting to to ease our way out of a a, a post pandemic world, uh, I cannot recommend highly enough some of the um, special tours that you can take. They're, they're ticketed tours you could take uh, throughout Walt Disney World, but I think Disney's Animal Kingdom has some of the best. Um, there's a, a Caring for Giants tour. And again, these are, are currently suspended, but I believe they will eventually come back. Uh, Savor the Savannah. I've done Wild Africa Trek twice so far. Um, I promised my son I would take him once he turned 16 so he can do it too to really give you an understanding and appreciation and a, a literal peek backstage to see what happens when these animals are off stage and just what this incredible operation it is to 
not just maintain the attractions, but like you said, first and foremost, maintain and, and really care for these animals. It is. It is. Uh, I highly recommend those tours as well. Even if, uh, you know, one of the things I always would remind guests or encourage guests to do when they left Kilimanjaro safaris before they ran to Expedition Everest or Dinosaur or even left the park for the day to make sure the easiest thing to do was to hook a right into Gorilla Falls Exploration Trail and spend some time with the animals there and a little bit of a slower pace, a little bit of a slower pace and a, in a way, a little bit more of an intimate experience because you are <clears throat> spending more time with them in, in that setting or to your point, going to Conservation Station. And you can see even on the Wildlife Express train, some of the the backstage houses for the for some of the animals as you're taking the wildlife express train over there but yeah it's the the more you can get in touch with or encounter these animals through tours or or through those those wildlife experiences at the park the more of an appreciation you will have for them and what disney has done to give them such a uh you know again that vip experience such a comfortable environment and knowing that they are so well cared for while they're in Disney's hands. Absolutely. Uh, anything else? Any other stories that um, that you want to share? I could go a <laughs> million different ways. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, if you bring us home with with something, you share one more. I'll share one more, and then we'll sort of wrap up our our thoughts about it. Because you're right. I think we could probably talk, and certainly you could just talk about the the safaris from from so many different perspectives which is i think one of the the reasons why um the attraction is so important so beloved um and has such a obviously an amazing rewritability factor yeah um you, you touched on one of the things i definitely wanted to talk about which was the idea of, of those sort of bonus experiences the wild africa track was a great example they've in the past done even more than that they used to have a sunrise safari they had grand gatherings they had a, a number of different ways you can get almost a, a private um Safari, uh, it, no, but that expired or that that went extinct. I think it's latest 2016, somewhere in there. Uh, there's there's a couple of, and I think people would be uh, interested to hear. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to give away a lot of the the things in the attraction that are are real or fake. Um, there's there's a number of things that are there that appear to be something that are not. A good example. Of one that is real but is manipulated in a different way is the trees out in the savannah. They're meant to look like um, this this breed of African trees, um, but they're really Florida oaks um, that are manicured and manipulated. It's the only thing in animal kingdom that I can think of that's a, a live thing that's or a living thing that's not allowed to just grow naturally um, in whatever direction it wants to go, but those are manipulated and sort of cut to make them look like this, this style of African, this breed of African tree that's out there. Um, a couple of things that are uh, fabricated that are um, more Easter eggs, I'll say, because I'm not going to give away everything. Oh, by the way, the ostrich eggs are real. That's the other <laughs> thing I wanted to say. The ostrich eggs, a lot of people think it's the one thing that they see and they say fake because they don't see ostriches with them. <laughs> the fun thing is those are actual real ostrich eggs. They don't have a live ostrich in them, but they they are live. They are they are real ostrich eggs that were uh, placed in the savanna and I think filled with some sort of um, material or uh, 
some sort of, uh, I, I don't know exactly what went into them, but it keeps them preserved as they are, which is a, a little fun fact about them. But the two that I wanted to mention that are fabricated that I think a lot of people know are fabricated are one, the Flamingo Islands is a hidden Mickey. It's one of the largest hidden Mickeys on property. I don't know if it's technically the largest because who knows how many there are. Um, I think the lar- it was not as large as the Disney MGM Studios Hidden Mickey at one time, but it is one of the largest at the park, um, if not at Walt Disney World. And one that I have, look, I, I have not been able to confirm this outside of having worked there, but I will, I've, you know, this is one of the things I heard when I was training. So I'm going to take it as an actual thing if I, if I learned it while I was training there. The, where the lions are, which is that rock formation is called a copies. They, that large rock is Donald Duck, a hidden Donald Duck, a giant hidden Donald Duck, hidden in plain sight. If you look very, very carefully, you can see it, but the very, there's a, there's a small rock at the top. If you're looking at a picture, it's kind of a small rock hanging off. That's supposed to be the top of his hat. Part of the rock in the front as you're going around the front does form his eyes kind of loosely. And then the base is supposed to be his, um, his beak. But again, I have not like, I've, I've scoured Imagineering books. I need to, at one of these days, get in touch with Joe Brody and ask him if that's an actual thing. It could have been one of those cast member um, myths that were just, that was just passed down the grapevine. But some part of me has to believe if I was taught it in training and it stuck with me, that it's probably a legitimate thing or it's just a figment of our imaginations but that was one that not as many people know so is that different than the hidden jafar i haven't heard about the hidden jafar see so we may be talking about the same thing so as you pass as you go around the um the the lion rock area and as you you know you it's it's you starts off it's well it's always on your left but as you sort of go around it moving to the next section in the back there's a, a a tall rock that if you use your when somebody points it out to you, you're like you're right it's a hidden jafar it looks like the giant head of jafar with his turban on top of his head you're probably like sure mangello but i will send you a picture <laughs> and you're like and i'm wondering if it's the same thing just in, it probably is the exact same rock formation being interpreted differently yeah we'll we'll call it a um a, a folk, a folk, yeah, like folk tale myth, just one of those uh, fables that's passed down from cast member to cast member or guest to guest. It's a hidden something, um, but it's like looking in the clouds and, and seeing what you want to see. You see a hidden Mickey yeah, exactly. in the clouds. Um, but the, the Flamingo Island is definitely a hidden Mickey. The lion rock formation, again, I heard, I heard hidden Donald. You've heard hidden Jafar. It could be both <laughs> Donald we'll dressed to, as Jafar. We'll have to put Who the knows? picture up and put a poll <laughs> up and see, is it a hidden Donald or is it a hidden Jafar? Um, or are we crazy and it's yeah, none of the above? Yeah, <laughs> it could be a combination of all of the above. Uh, but, I, but I see, this is what I love. And I love the fact that this, what appears on its face to be a relatively low tech, because there is a lot of technology that goes in from a safety, a security standpoint. But I, I mean, even things, you know, like... We, we talk about secrets and illusions in Magic Kingdom. Some electronic technology based, some not. Some, you know, hundreds of year old um, uh, illusions and perspective. That happens throughout Kilimanjaro Safari, right? In terms of hiding moats so that the lions don't get past that area and then come into the guest area. That moat might look like it's very shallow, but it's what, 16, 18 feet 
something like that. Yeah. Um, they're lounging out because it's Africa hot and animal kingdom, but there are air, <laughs> hidden air conditioners to try and keep the animals cool as they're out there. Even some of the, the ways and places that the animal caretakers feed the animals are hiding in plain sight. Um, they, they, they have some of these enticements for lack of a better word to help draw out some of the animals that might, you know, like my children be sleeping most of the day <laughs> and, and might not want to come out in the heat. So whether it's a feeder in what looks like a hollowed out tree stump or a salt block or whatever it is, we don't see them, but the animals know that they are there and they are They're They're illusions from a guest perspective. They are. I love that the, the fact that you brought up those moats because that is on my list and it's just using theatric line of sight. You don't even know that they're there. You are passing by the lions and you think that they are right on that hill. They just have to take one step towards you and they can now go down this hill. But there is this huge moat that you cannot see. The only way you can really get a sense of it is if you look at like, if you really want to see it, satellite images of Kilimanjaro safaris from like Google Maps, you can you can kind of see the uh, those large moats there. But because safety is so important, if for some reason, which the likelihood of this happening is beyond rare, um, <clears throat> if for some reason the an animal like a lion was able to muster up, you know, Spider-Man strength to to jump over <laughs> and, and get out, there are emergency exits built into Kilimanjaro safaris. There is at least six that I know of wow. um, that the vehicles, they don't have to go now past the lion to make it to the exit. There are places that, and you can kind of see them, they make this, it's always a left turn because you're mostly going right out of around Kilimanjaro safaris um, into this unknown area, which goes to a backstage gate that the gate opens for trucks. The trucks can go through, the gates can close and they can let guests out safely in the backstage area. Um, which I did have to do once, not for an animal related reason. There was an extended delay that it was literally the middle of July. It must have been 99 degrees. The heat index was probably 105. And we had to, you know, that's the only time I've seen Kilimanjaro Safaris be evac'd. Um, but all the guests were taken backstage because they knew that the hold up, there was something in the way, was not going to be cleared out in a reasonable amount of time to keep guests uh, from overheating. So. There's a lot of safety in place that you might not even know and will probably never be used or very, 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 very rarely be used on Kilimanjaro safaris. I love that. And I love that it, it comes back to the the core importances, right? You talk about the safety courtesy show efficiency. Safety is always first. Guest safety takes precedence over anything else, including the, the show elements. Um, and I love the fact that sort of we, we've come full circle. And that's actually how, and I'm, and I'm really happy it's sort of, is going to play here the way I wanted it to in my mind when I thought about this, because I do want this all to come, <clears throat> excuse me, full circle, because I do believe that's what Kilimanjaro Safari does in terms of its connection to Walt Disney. And whether you may or, or, or may not have known this, um, I think Kilimanjaro Safari is, I, not that I think, it is the ultimate realization of what Walt wanted for his original concepts for Jungle Cruise. He wanted a guest experience where they would be able to go through, there it was water, here it's a savanna, but have an experience that involved live animals. We know of Walt's love and appreciations for animals and, and nature and wildlife. 
realizing at the time in the in the early 50s because of the unpredictable nature of animals and and not being able to to conceptualize what he wanted they decided to use these um I mean, they're not technically audio animatronic but these these um fake animals um using pneumatics and and hydraulics but I love the fact, Matt, that Disney never lost sight of Walt's original vision for having something where guests could come in and not only, it's just, it goes back to this idea of edutainment, not only enjoy something, but learn something along the way. And even probably more impactful than he ever imagined it, you talked about, you walk away oftentimes from Animal Kingdom impacted and and inspired and motivated and curious, which are all the things that I think Walt wanted us to feel about some of these other attractions. And I think probably in the most important and impactful way here, but not at all in a way that detracts from the fun that Kilimanjaro Safari affords. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. I <clears throat> I don't think I thought about it too much at the time when I was working there, but more recently since I've been podcasting, I think, and really internalizing things at Disney, even on a deeper level than I did before. I feel like this was one of those attractions that I, we, I think all of us or a lot of us know that it is that realization of, of Walt's dream for this type of attraction. But I, I know it's almost bittersweet. I wish that Walt could have seen it because I feel like he would have spent so much time at this attraction. He would have been out there mornings walking the track before the attraction opened, before the animals were out on the savanna, or perhaps even if I was driving around in a truck doing a, a you know sort of show test in the morning before the attraction opens, you know he might have popped in the vehicle and just wanted to go throughout the savanna and and check it out. Which that's an experience, by the way, you'll never probably never get to see as a guest or very rarely, which is what I'll call a quiet safari. Um, whereas a cast member, if I was driving without guests, you know you can really admire this attraction, the animals. The you know you, you, of course the the narration and the facts are what make that bring that attraction to life. But without that, you know if you if you ride Splash Mountain without any of the music or any of the sounds, it's it's not going to be the same as going through. Now this this still is almost an experience without um, without the script, um, just because of those animals and the environments that were created. But I think Walt would have adored this attraction and spent a lot of time experiencing it incognito or before or after the park hours. I, I think he would have not only enjoyed it, I think he would be proud of it. Um, same way I think Walt would be proud of you. Um, and I'm not just saying that as as uh, a throwaway. I, I mean it because I think your passion as a, not just a Disney enthusiast, but as a cast member came through. And I'm sorry that I never got to experience you as our guide for our three-week safari on Kilimanjaro Safaris. Uh, I will say the one thing that I love and I miss oh so very much. I mentioned you earlier, Warden Wilson Matua. <laughs> May you rest in peace wherever you are. But man, one thing that I miss and I still love this song and I have no idea what they're saying. I just make up my own lyrics when I sing it in the car. You talk about the, the cues and, and the, the tuning of the radio station. When you turned on that radio and it took me years to find out that it was called Hapa Duniani by African yes. Dawn. I love, love, love that song. And there's something that is is wonderful and comforting. And, and I still have it on my playlist. We'll have to uh, you'll have to play it in the uh, in the episode. It is 
It is a great song. It, honestly, that never got old. Every yeah. every time I went around, it never got old. It's Puts a beautiful a smile song. on my face. Just as our conversation to Matt, we have to certainly do this again. Uh, yes. I appreciate you being here. Please do me a favor. Tell people where they can find you, your podcast, and all on the social. I'd love to. Imagineer Podcast is very easy to find. You could probably just go to imagineerpodcast.com. That leads you to all the social places. But if you type in Imagineer Podcast on just about any social media channel or podcast app, I'm probably there. So I'm big on Instagram. That's where you can find me the most active, but just about any social platform. Um, but again, imagineerpodcast.com, the easiest way to find uh, all the places that you can follow along and engage. I will, uh, I will certainly link to that in the show notes. And um, as the song says, when can we do this again? We'll have to get <laughs> together and, uh, and, and chat about some good stuff. So thank you always so much, brother. A, always a pleasure. I loved you. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Lou. All right, man. Very quick. What was your, what was your favorite animal or your favorite animal area? I knew you were going to ask me this question and I was thinking about <laughs> it today and I could, <laughs> it's like picking if you had like five pets, what would your favorite pet be? And they're all different types of animals. Um, I really have to say it was probably the elephants just because they were the cornerstone of the attraction and part of the original storyline was really focused on them and they are just such amazing creatures. So um, I ne- it never got old seeing them playing in the water. It was just, it was so much fun. Yeah, what about beautiful. you? They're beautiful. They're, they're beautiful, and you don't realize just how big they are. Um, my answer is surprising to me, but fine. I'm, you know what? We're all friends here. I will admit it. There have been times, including very, 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 very recently, that we just caught a lucky day, man, and there was a ton of giraffe outside, and there was this little baby giraffe, and then when you see them start to run... And you can almost, you get close and you can see the personality. I was choked up. Like I was literally choked up just at the joy that I felt watching these beautiful creatures and and having that gift of being able to see it in that way. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I must be going through some sort of weird emotional thing, but I did. I I think they're, they're beautiful and they're graceful. They are. And fun fact, they eat 20 hours a day. And that's why I (laughs) and I bond. You set me up for that one, man. You knew (laughs) I didn't know you were going to say giraffes, but that was. <laughs> By the way, Hapa Duniani, I've heard and I've read, but I, th- I haven't done the actual translation. It's supposed to be the Lord's Prayer. That's I saw Swahili. that too. And I, I, until I can actually speak to African Dawn and confirm right. that, <laughs> I, I'm not saying don't believe the internet, but don't always believe the internet because I have no idea. And I didn't want to put that out there too. Yeah, that's why I didn't. Uh, I did not include it as a fact. It's just one of those things that I, didn't, I have no idea. It's a beautiful. Whatever they're saying, it's a. Uh, it's a beautiful song. So it. It really is awesome. Thanks again, brother. It's time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history, or just to see how well you pay attention to the details and what you see, hear, remember, or taste. If you think you know the answer, you can enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package. This week's trivia contest is brought to you by Sideshow Collectibles, where you can let your Disney sideshow with limited edition collectible figures, statues, 
art, jewelry, replicas, apparel, and lots more. Everything you can think of and some things you can't for your home, your office from this Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars universes. Check out their entire collection at wdwradio.com slash sideshow and save $15 off your first order by signing up for their free newsletter. Now, before we get to this week's trivia question, let's go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, I wanted to make the question relevant to our conversation about Avengers Campus, as well as somewhat easy and fun, if you're a comic book and Spider-Man nerd like me, because I brought back some of my visit to Avengers Campus with me for you, and the prize package this week is going to include some of what I brought back. So the question was to simply tell me the name of the newspaper editor that Peter Parker works for at the Daily Bugle, thanks to the hundreds of you entered got this one correct and know of course that it is J. Jonah Jameson and the winner of last week's Avengers Campus and I'll throw in some WW Radio stuff as well prize package randomly selected is David Coolball from Florida David I have your address I will get your prize package out to you right away if you played last week and didn't win that's okay because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge We're going to keep the contests timely and relevant because the Jungle Cruise has not just been updated in both Disneyland as well as Walt Disney World, but the Jungle Cruise movie starring The Rock and Emily Blunt is coming out very, very soon. And so tell me this week, what four rivers in the Jungle Cruise do you go and visit along with your skipper? Just tell me the name and or locations of the four rivers that you visit on your Jungle Cruise adventure you have until Sunday, August 1st at 11.59 p.m. Eastern to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast, use the online form there. Again, you're going to play for a prize package. It's going to include a WW Radio pin and keychain, which you can only get by winning the trivia contest, as well as a little mystery bonus surprise as well. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. Please come be part of the community and conversation over in the WW Radio Clubhouse on Facebook. That is our fun, friendly, family-friendly, and very welcoming community. You can talk about the Kilimanjaro Safari. Is it a must-do? Is it a never-do? Share a story of a great driver or talk about anything that you want in the Disney, Marvel, or Star Wars universe. You can also connect with me on social. I am at Lou Mangiello on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on an upcoming show, you can email me, lou at www.radio.com or call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1 with a question, a comment, or just a hello from the parks. Also, please be sure and join me this and every Wednesday night for WW Radio Live, where we talk not just about this week's show, but what's new and what's news in Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars, my Disney Plus pick of the week, my top five live, your questions, comments, and more. Also, don't forget about my two new unscheduled live shows and segments, Let's Talk and Let's Walk. Let's Talk is individual topic-based discussions about everything in Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars. We could review and talk about the latest Disney movie released, or for example, this week, we're going to talk about behind the attractions on Disney+. Plus. We might talk about some new or breaking news or whatever single topic we're going to discuss, again, completely unscheduled. And then Let's Walk, where I'll go live from the Disney parks, the resorts, maybe a restaurant, 
cruise line, Disneyland, or even someplace not Disney, where we just do some walk and talk tours and conversation throughout the Disney parks. It's super important that you turn on notifications both on the WW Radio page on Facebook as well as the WW Clubhouse group on Facebook. If you go to the top of the WDW Radio page, there's a short video there on exactly how to turn on notifications on your mobile as well as desktop devices. Speaking of groups, be sure and join our spoiler support group at www.radio.com slash support to talk about all spoilers in the Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars cinematic and TV worlds. Speaking of Marvel, I would love for you to join us on our Marvel Day at Sea cruise on the Disney Magic, February 5th through the 10th, 2022, out of Miami. Go to www.radio.com slash marvelcruise for a free, no-obligation quote. If you can't make that, we're going to cruise not once, but twice on the Disney Wish in 2022. June 20th is going to be a four-night inaugural, and December 5th is going to be a very merry time cruise on the Disney Wish if you go to www.radio.com slash DisneyWish2022, you can find out more and get a free new obligation quote. Speaking of getting together, I cannot express my incredible, humble gratitude to you and everyone who came back to our WW Radio Meet of the Month this past weekend in Disney Springs. This is the first meet that we've been able to do together since the pandemic hit a year and a half ago. I cannot tell you what it meant to me to see you, to shake your hand, to give you a hug, and more importantly, watch you get together with new and longtime friends out in Springs. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you couldn't make this month's Meet of the Month, we will be back again in August. Stay tuned for the August date. If you go to www.radio.com slash events, that will take you to the WW Radio Facebook page or a list of all upcoming events. I'll be releasing more information about what's coming up for the rest of the year in addition to some of the meets of the month that we are planning, especially and including for Walt Disney World's 50th on October 1st. Also, save the date November 13th and 14th, 2021 for my Momentum Weekend Workshop in Walt Disney World. Two days, 50 entrepreneurs, a weekend of inspiration, education, and collaboration to help you turn what you love into what you do. I'll have more information, including ticket release, later on this week. So if you go to LouMangelo.com, you can find out more. Speaking of LouMangelo.com, if I can come to speak to your event, your conference, or to your school, you can find about some of the different topics that I can craft specifically for you and your attendees. Also, huge, huge thanks to all of the new and longtime members of the WW Radio Nation family, including Kerry Bruni, Dan Taylor, Craig Hargrove, Gretchen Zavarella, Melanie Jones, Father Christopher, and Angelo and Lori Oliveri. I sincerely, sincerely appreciate you. And I love being able to give back to you each and every month with monthly scavenger hunts and trivia quests, our live video group calls, early access to special events, monthly care packages from Walt Disney World, and this month will be from Disneyland, hint, hint. To find out more how you can help the show, and get exclusive rewards, you can visit www.radio.com slash support. Again, it's completely optional, very much appreciated, and starts at as, at as little as a dollar a month. And please don't forget that a portion of your contribution does go to our Dream Team project to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. Thanks, as always, to Mouse Fan Travel, my official and recommended travel provider. 
Head to mousefantravel.com for a free no-obligation quote to any Disney or other destination. More importantly, an incredible level of personal service that every single client receives. And finally, most importantly, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you like the show, and I hope that you do, all I ask that you please help spread the word, invite a friend to listen, share a link to this or your favorite episode on social. And if you can, take just a few seconds to rate and review the show over an Apple podcast. It is incredibly helpful, does not take very long. I want to thank some recent reviewers like Dolphasil, who says it's like a warm hug. He's from the United Kingdom, so he's saying it with a British accent. And to say that I adore this podcast is an understatement. I've been listening for about four years and love searching through the earlier podcasts to find absolute gems, especially all the top tens. Living in the UK, I sometimes feel so very far away from Disney World, but Lou and the podcast make me feel like I am home. I don't have a fellow Disney fan in my family or friends group. Yes, you do. It's us who is as obsessed as I am. So the WW Radio podcast and the clubhouse are where I go to feed. Yes, let's talk about food. He says, my love for everything Disney. They are Ohana. Thank you so much, Dalta Sill. And Tiana Donnelly from Canada says, WW Radio is the absolute best. My partner turned me on to the podcast last year in the midst of the pandemic. It was the best thing for me and my mental health. I've always been a Disney nerd and living in Canada. This is the only way I get to enjoy Disney over and over each week. Thank you to Lou for being the beacon of hope and love during such a difficult times. Tiana and Dolphasil, thank you so very much. I would not be able to do what I do without you. And I am incredibly grateful to you and for you again. Just please search for WW Radio and Apple Podcasts, or if you go to www.radio.com slash iTunes, it'll give you a link and instructions right there. Finally, most importantly, again, my incredible, heartfelt, and sincerest gratitude to you. You don't know how much you being here and listening and listening this far into the show means to me. I hope that the show is a light for you and an escape for you, especially if it's at a time that you need it most. Know that I am your friend, whether we have met yet or not, and that you do have friends in the WDW Radio Clubhouse group over on Facebook. And I do hope that the show does inspire you to choose the good, to find the good, not just in what you encounter in the Disney world, but in the overall world itself, I promise you that that if you change your way of thinking and look for and choose and find the good in everything that you encounter, that not only will you be happier, but that happiness is contagious and you will be the good for other people as well. And I promise you that we can all make a difference. One person, one handshake, one hug at a time. I love and appreciate you more than you may ever know. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope that the show put a smile on your face and made your day and your week the best that it could possibly be. So until next time, see ya. Lou, my man, this episode really got me fired up. It's Victoria Gist from Connecticut. Um, I just, I'm so excited for the Jungle Cruise movie and with this topic of the top 10 rides that should be Made into movies, my imagination just went wild. All I can say about everything suggested is I dig it. I dig it all. I've been itching for a Walt Disney biopic since seeing some fan art of a poster showing former Masketeer Ryan Gosling as a young Walt. I would love if in the upcoming Lightyear meta movie, we maybe find ourselves at a cantina or bar where the featured entertainment is. Drumroll, please. Sunny Eclipse. And honestly, I don't care how Figment makes it onto our screens. I'm seeing that movie series, whatever. 
But as inspired as I was by all of the offerings, I'll just flesh out a couple of my favorites to keep it short. First, I'd love to see an Expedition Everest story. Or should I say, Expedition Everest, a Seven Summits adventure. Gotta leave it open for the inevitable sequels, or perhaps the inevitable Disney Plus series. In addition to fleshing out the backstory of the expedition for Animal Kingdom purposes, it'd be a really nice homage to Frank Wells' window on Main Street, USA. Maybe this is the company homing this uh, group that is trying to hit all seven summits. Uh, but second, and the one that I feel most passionate about, I gotta agree, Haunted Mansion of Revamp is a must. But I see it as a sort of dark comedy with jump scares followed by giggles as we follow a group of ghost hunters or debunkers, sort of a la Scooby-Doo, traveling the world to debunk hauntings, only to get more than they might have bargained for with these 999 happy haunts. <laughs> I'd love to see like a strong all-star cast that not only are good actors, but just such strong comedic timing so it doesn't feel like a goofy movie like uh, maybe Andre Brower from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Jamila Jamil from The Good Place. Yeah, I mean, obviously Bill Hader would be great. Maya Rudolph, Kate McKinnon, maybe Kevin Hart. And my personal favorite idea, maybe Ted Danson as your host, your ghost host. <laughs> In the sequels, of course, the gang can continue on to like Phantom Manor and Mystic Manor, maybe even Hotel Hightower. Um, I could totally see this as a Disney Plus series as well, because there's just so much material. You might not do it justice with just a film per place. And it could exist totally within the same world as the SCA, of course, with the Hotel Hightower and the Mystic Manor. But perhaps these rogue ghost hunters are a bit looked down on by such prestigious explorers. Gosh, my brain is just whirring with all the possibilities. So thank you, Lou, for another killer episode. I'm going to be thinking about this one for a good while. Thanks, and take care. Hi, Lou and WDW Radio family. It's Elizabeth from Massachusetts. I cannot believe how long it is since I've called. What has happened? Um, but, yeah, oh, my gosh. I was in Walt Disney World just thoroughly enjoying every moment with my family. Um, we had a little over a week-long stay at the Polynesian, and despite all the construction, it was absolutely fabulous. So. In my personal opinion, if you're headed there anytime soon, don't worry about the construction. It is still great, and the cast members are still some of my absolute favorite on all of property. Um, after that, um, I went away for another week, <laughs> kind of took a tour around North Carolina, an absolutely beautiful state, um, and now I'm finally back home um, here to get back to work after what was needed after a crazy uh, school year. So I hope everyone's doing well, and I hope everyone that wanted to sign up for the uh, Wine and Dine race got in today. Um, today was a sign-up day for it. It's so exciting that the races are going to be back in person. And, yeah, just wishing everybody um, super well wishes. Hope everyone is enjoying their summer in one shape, way, or form. And I look forward to the next episode. I will see you all or talk to you all really soon. Be well, stay well, and make somebody's day magical. Bye, guys. Have a good day.